Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's opened up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, going to be reading right there at the top of the chapter in just a moment. I'll invite you to be finding James chapter 1 in your Bible. We'll be in a number of different passages this morning, and you will be benefited by following along and cranking a Bible open and being looking at the text of Scripture for these next few minutes as we work together in the Word of God. As you're turning to James chapter 1, I will echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody this morning. Got a great number in attendance on this uh, fine fall day as I was driving over to the church building this morning. was admiring seeing some of the, the leaves changing color and seeing uh, the beauty of the creation around us. And that just served as a, great, as a great reminder of why we're here today. And that is to give honor and glory and praise to the one who makes all of this beauty possible that is around us. We have sang and we have prayed and offered our worship unto God in those ways. Now we want to continue doing that by reverencing God through His Word. Let's read together in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is kind of a startling way for James to begin his epistle to his readers. He says in James 1 and verse 2, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness." And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It has been said that a pearl is the product of suffering. We've all seen pearls before. Maybe even some of our ladies are wearing pearls this morning, pearl necklaces, pearl earrings. But have you ever stopped and thought about the process by which a pearl comes into being? A pearl is formed... Whenever an oyster gets a grain of sand trapped inside of the the soft, fleshy part of its shell, that little piece of sand serves as a tremendous irritant to the oyster. It actually causes the oyster great pain and great discomfort. If you've ever gotten a grain of sand in your eye, then you understand how painful that can be. Well, since an oyster doesn't have arms to be able to just kind of rub and get that taken care of, it doesn't have a way of just shaking that out or getting free of it in any kind of way, Instead, what the oyster does is it deals with that pain. Oysters are able to ooze out a substance called nacre that is able to actually coat the sand. And as they coat it layer upon layer upon layer, ultimately it ends up hardening. And the end result of that is a beautiful pearl. So something that started out as being very painful turned into something that was very beautiful, very valuable. In that sense then, A pearl is the product of suffering. Tell me this then. How do you make a mature Christian? What is the process for developing a well-rounded, spiritually complete disciple of Jesus? Somebody would maybe say, well, you need to read and study the Bible. That's right, you do. You need to read and study your Bible. Somebody else may say, well, I think you need to pray. You need to be involved in lots of prayer. Absolutely. You need to be praying a lot if you want to grow Somebody else would maybe offer, well, I think worship is an important part of that. Or being a servant, that's important. Or being evangelistic, and the answer to all of those things is yes, yes, and yes. All of those things play a role in spiritual growth. But what about, what about pain? What about suffering? When's the last time you heard somebody say that they needed to grow spiritually and the way that they were going to go about that was by going through some trials, going through some suffering? We hear someone say that and we would think, that just sounds crazy. That just sounds ridiculous to our sensibilities. And yet, 
That's exactly what James says and what he prescribes here in our opening text. James says that perfection or maturity, completeness in a spiritual sense, he says it is the product of suffering. He says that trials are a huge component in the growth process. This year we have been talking in our preaching theme about various aspects of spiritual growth. And no discussion about spiritual growth would be complete without talking about the vital role of trials. And I would have you notice in our text that James does not limit that to just certain kinds of trials. We maybe would be inclined to think, okay, if you suffer persecution, well, that's going to help you to grow spiritually. Okay, that probably is so. But James doesn't just limit it to that. James says in verse 2, he says, various trials can lead to growth. That's pretty open-ended, isn't it? Which means that we really could be talking about anything that enters into our life that causes us pain and discomfort. Maybe, maybe that would be a physical trial, like a sickness or a disability. Maybe that would be a relational trial, like a divorce, a broken home, a prodigal child. Maybe that would be an economic, a financial trial, like the loss of a job. Maybe that would be an emotional trial, like the loss of a loved one. Maybe that would be a spiritual trial, a particular temptation that a person just struggles with day after day after day. Life is filled with all kinds of trials, big and small. And the question before us this morning is not, why do those things happen? That's usually what we want to ask. When trials and difficulties come, we want to ask the why question. Why? Why does God allow that? Or why did God put that into my life? That's what we always want. That's what the world wants to cry out in response to trials and difficulties. And beyond some general broad principles that the Scripture gives to us, you should know the Bible never specifically answers the why question. And so what we want to find out this morning is not the answer to the why question. We want to find out how can those trials help us to grow. In what ways can we gain and benefit from our suffering? We're not trying to figure out all the philosophical complexities about the origins of suffering today, no. We just want to know how can we let adversity and trials work within us to produce the pearl of a spiritually mature Christian. And the way that I want to do that this morning is by sharing with you six opportunities that trials afford us to help make us complete. And I want to be clear, first of all, that this is not going to be an exhaustive list by any means. There are dozens, maybe even hundreds, of ways in which trials help us to grow. We're just going to be looking at six this morning. But then secondly, I do want to emphasize that these are opportunities for growth. Luke and I were actually just talking about this at lunch the other day. Just because you're going through a trial... That does not automatically mean that you are going to grow from it. Some Christians experience trials, and they don't see it as an opportunity. They instead see that as an obstacle. And as a result, they go backwards, not forwards. They get discouraged, they become bitter, they quit coming to church, they give up on the Lord. That's why I like the way that the New Living Translation renders this passage in James. Can I share that with you? There the translation reads, Dear brothers and sisters, When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance, an opportunity 
to grow. So seize upon that opportunity. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This morning, I'm pressing all of us this morning to develop a shift in attitude towards suffering. The kind of attitude that sees and then seizes the precious golden opportunities that trials bring into our life. Are you ready for that? Let's just start that where I think James is starting all of that. James talks here about perfection and completeness. What's that all about? Well, I believe what he's trying to say here is that trials trials can develop within us the character of Christ. I'm probably going to spend the most time here on this first point because spiritual growth, you need to know, at its essence, it's about becoming like Christ. If we don't remember anything else this year out of this series about growth, I hope we'll remember this one thing, that spiritual growth is not just about coming to church. Spiritual growth is not just about doing religious things. Spiritual growth at its heart is about becoming like Jesus. You know, one of the biggest urban legends in all of modern Christianity is the myth that God wants you to be happy. You ever heard that before? Televangelists like Joel Austin, that's part of the message that they preach. God wants you to be happy. He has a wonderful plan for your life and He wants you to be happy. You'll even hear people say that about themselves. God just wants me to be happy. Sometimes that's used almost kind of as an excuse or a justification for someone to continue on in a sinful activity. But I do think that lots of people are convinced that God's primary interest in His people is seeing to it that we are comfortable, seeing to it that we are happy, that God is going to be kind of like a bulldozer parent where He just plows everything out of the way. All of the obstacles, all the trials, God's going to remove all the difficulties to make our lives just so smooth. Well, that's a real fanciful notion, but it is entirely unbiblical. Look in Hebrews, the 12th chapter with me, please. Just maybe turn back a page if you're in James. In Hebrews chapter 12, as the Hebrew writer talks here about the discipline and the chastening of the Lord, and in the midst of that, he compares God, our heavenly Father, with our earthly physical fathers. And he talks in this passage about what God's purposes are for our suffering. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, look in verse 10. He says, for they, that's our physical fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by. I want to say to you right up front that God is not interested most of all in your happiness. God, I'll maybe even just say it this way. God doesn't want you to be happy. You know what God wants? God wants you to be holy. He wants you to be holy and He wants you to be happy about that. That's what God wants. God is more concerned with building people who have strength and integrity and courage and endurance than He is with clearing that smooth path so that we can all just coast through life on cruise control and never develop into anything even closely resembling His Son. How exactly did Jesus develop the character that He possessed? Well, Peter tells us, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that a big part of His development was that He suffered. In 1 Peter chapter 2, look at what Peter tells us to do. In light of the reality that Jesus suffered, what is our response to that? In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. As soon as I ask the question, who here wants to be like Jesus? Well, everybody's going to raise their hand. But as soon as I then ask the question, who here wants a trial? Who here wants to suffer? Well, nobody's going to raise their hand. But I want you to understand this morning that those two questions, they are one and the same. You see, if we didn't experience trials, we would never become like Jesus. Instead, you know what we would become like? We would become, we would become like those. You ever see those trees that are at the shopping mall? You've seen trees that are planted inside of a shopping mall. I can't remember if there's trees planted here in the Somerset Mall, but there are other malls that have them. Have you ever went up and touched or leaned on, or maybe tugged one of those trees in a mall, those things are weak. They are as flimsy and as floppy as a rubber band. Years ago, my buddy Jimmy, we were walking in Fayette Mall, and he dared me to jump up and to grab onto a limb and see if I could hang on to it. You know what happened? The entire tree bent over with me as I came crashing down on my rear on the ground. I learned very quickly, don't go hanging on tree limbs in malls, But more importantly, I learned that those things, they're just frail. They're weak. They're vulnerable. Do you know why that is? It's because they're not outside. They're not planted out in the elements. They are not exposed to the forces of nature beating upon it day in and day out. Heavy rains, strong winds, scorching heat day after day. The kinds of things that help to build a strong and sturdy and stable tree. And I must tell you this morning that in order to build a strong and sturdy and stable Christian molded after the image of Jesus, then there's going to have to be some suffering involved. In 1 Peter chapter 5, just flip a page in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I love this verse because Peter helps us to get some perspective on our trials. He says in verse 10, 1 Peter 5 verse 10, After you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, Christ, He will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Peter says that if I'll stop looking at suffering from this negative point of view all the time, if I'll just hold place for a moment, if I'll just bear up for a little while, then I may just come out of this stronger than when it all began. You just stop right now and you think, Think about the people that you have known in your life who you consider to be the strongest, most devoted, most faithful Christians. The people who were the most Christ-like. Can I ask you, whoever it is that you might be thinking of right now, did that person just always have it easy in their life? Did they just always get everything handed to them on a silver platter? They never had to struggle? Never had to worry about money? Never had to worry about health issues. Never had any kind of family problems. Was their life just mostly a big bed of roses? No. All the people that I've known who were mature and committed disciples of Jesus, they were people who experienced hardship. In fact, in my own life, I can attest to this. 
If you had met Josh McKibben prior to May the 4th, 2002, you would have met someone who was very, very different from the Josh McKibben that you now know today. May 4th, 2002 was the day that I lost my youngest brother Ben in an automobile accident. And that was a tough trial. That was a tough ordeal for me and for my family to go through. But now with 17, 17 and a half years of hindsight, I can say definitively that that trial, it served as a pivotal turning point in my spiritual development. You ask people who knew me before May the 4th, they will tell you I was in a shell. I was cloistered off. I was nothing more than a pew filler. But that served as an opportunity for growth. It brought me out of that funk of mediocrity. And by the grace of God, now as a result, I'm able to stand before you and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's not just true in my life. You see that all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, you think about a guy like Joseph. Did Joseph exhibit spiritual maturity before he was sold as a slave in Egypt? Or was it after he was a slave in Egypt? It's after, wasn't it? Or what about in the life of someone like Paul? Look in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, I would argue that Paul is more Christ-like in the midst of suffering, like right here in Philippians when he is writing from prison, from jail, he's in a trial. I would argue that he is more mature here than at any other point in his life prior to this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is actually asking for more trials so that he can become more like Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, look in verse 7. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Notice this that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm certainly not saying to you this morning that Paul was some kind of a masochist, but here's a guy who absolutely understood the value in suffering. And I will tell you today what I believe makes the difference between weak Christians and strong Christians. Weak Christians see trials as something that God does to them. But strong Christians see trials as something that God is doing for them. It is the opportunity to develop within us the heart and the mind and the character of Jesus Christ. That is something worth rejoicing. In fact, that is the second thing that I think trials can really do for us. And that is that trials can really enable us to demonstrate and ratchet up our joy. That's how James began our opening text, didn't he? In James 1 verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have joy in a trial? Well, once again, this is where people sometimes want to bring the idea of happiness into the equation. And I think that's a mistake. Because thinking that happiness and joy are perfect synonyms, well, that's just, that's just not so. Biblically speaking, it's not so. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on your circumstances. Happiness is because of your circumstances. Happiness is based on what is 
happening to you. That's the basis of both those words, happy and happen. If you go into work tomorrow and your boss says to you, hey, I'm giving you a raise. Yay! That's happy! Why? That's an emotional reaction as a result of what is happening to me, my circumstances. But what if you go into work tomorrow and your boss says to you, you're fired. You're out of here. Well, what do you do then? How are you going to have a happy reaction? Then You're not going to have a happy reaction. But can you still have joy? I'm going to contend to you that you can still have joy. Christians and non-Christians both can have the happies. But joy? Joy is the realm and the domain of God's people. Joy is not because of your circumstances. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. Can I say that again? Joy is a settled decision to praise God in spite of our circumstances and our trials. Look at Hebrews again in chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, let's think for a moment about Jesus here. In Hebrews chapter 12, what's said about Jesus? In Hebrews 12, look at verse 2. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Well, I can't think of anything less joyful than being crucified. And yet Jesus counted it, He considered it, He reckoned it as joy. Why? How was He able to do that? It's because He knew He was doing the will of His Father. It's because He knew He was accomplishing the very purpose that He was sent to this earth to do. It's because He knew He was authoring our eternal salvation. It's because He knew that His obedience was glorifying God in spite of the pain and the trial that He was enduring. And that is exactly what we see the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, just continuing to model in their lives in the weeks and months and years that followed. Look in Acts 5. Let's stitch together three passages very quickly here. In Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are arrested and they're brought before the Sanhedrin council, look at what their reaction to that is. In Acts chapter 5, look in verse 40. In Acts chapter 5 and in verse 40, the text says that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, joyful that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. Let me add to that, 2 Corinthians 7. In 2 Corinthians 7, if you were reading the 2 Corinthian letter, you would know that Paul already up to this point, he has described a multitude of trials that he and his fellow travelers have endured. But notice what he says about that in 2 Corinthians 7 and in verse 4. He says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. One more in this connection in 1 Peter again, in 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, Peter is addressing a group of people who were being severely tested with trials and persecutions. But look at what look at what Peter says that that provides them the opportunity to do. You go through this trial, you're going to get a chance to do something. First Peter chapter one verse six. In this, you can rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus the Christ. Let me be very, very clear here. 
none of these passages or any of the other passages that talk about joy in the midst of trials. None of these passages are saying that you have to enjoy your trial. None of these passages are saying that you have to put on some kind of a smile and you have to display some kind of outward happy emotion whenever trials come. Trials are painful. They are. When your spouse cheats on you, when the test results come back and they show cancer, when the factory or when the company, when it shuts down and you lose your job, there's nothing enjoyable about that, okay? But what those trials do afford is the opportunity to then respond in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. That instead of questioning God, or doubting God, or getting angry and shaking my fist at God, what I can do is I can praise Him, and I can thank Him for the settled assurance that I have deep inside that I am in Christ Jesus. That regardless of the momentary trials that I am doing, I am saved, I am one with the Lord. Think about it this way. Why do parents... Why do parents choose to have a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth child? Why do they do that when they know how painful and how costly it is to have the first child? You know, Tiffany and I, we knew. We knew of the nausea and the discomfort and the mood swings and the sleepless nights and the great expense that pregnancy would bring. Why did we choose to go through this again? It's because we were able to look past the momentary trial. And we were able to see the end result. And the end result is the joy of having new life. It is the joy of having another child. And so it is with a Christian. When we are able to look past the temporary pain of the trial in that moment, we are able to do that because our joy is based on the glorious promises and the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, a cancer diagnosis, as bad as that is, it cannot ever take away my salvation. The loss of a loved one, as hard as that is, that does not affect my relationship with Jesus Christ. The company shutting down and me losing my job and being on the unemployment line, that has no bearing on my hope of heaven. Real joy is independent of our circumstances. In our times of trial, they give us the opportunity to deepen and express that joy. Which leads right into this third thing this morning. And that is that trials give us the chance to also deepen and increase our dependence upon God. I have said before from the pulpit that I think men struggle with this maybe a little bit more than women. And that's because men just tend to want to be very self-sufficient. I know that I very much want to be self-sufficient in a lot of ways. But it's not just a problem that men have. It is a problem that all of us have to some degree or another. I know that I have a very independent kind of spirit where I try to take care of myself. and I don't want to have to rely on other people too much. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a mooch. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't need anybody's help. But in times of trial, that is when we realize that we absolutely need the help of others. And more specifically, in times of trial, that's when we realize that we need the help of the Lord and that we need to lean upon Him fully. I can remember being in the hospital on the night of my brother Ben's accident. And as he laid there on the the bed or the table or whatever it was, motionless, countless doctors and nurses are coming in and out of the room tending to him. And after hours and hours and hours of attempted emergency medical procedures, finally... Here's, I don't know, 
half dozen, a dozen of the most skilled men and women in their profession, and they tell us, we've done all that we can. And it's completely out of our hands now. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing any of the rest of us can do. And it is in that moment that you finally realize your absolute dependence upon the God of heaven. We sing that wonderful song. We sang it the other night. I need thee every hour. And at no other time do we recognize that more than in the hour of trial. In 1 Peter chapter 5 again, would you go back there? In 1 Peter 5, Peter is again, he's encouraging these Christians to persevere even amidst some severe trials. And he tells them in verse 7, this important admonition in 1 Peter 5 and in verse 7, he says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Peter's saying, you're not self-sufficient. You're not able to carry it all on your own. You cannot do it all by yourself. In fact, sometimes people will even say, sometimes Christians will even say, God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can bear. Actually, actually that's not true. Would you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? God actually will give you more than you can bear. He won't tempt you more than you can handle. But He will give you more than you can bear in this life. And there's a specific reason as to why He does that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look in verse 8. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul's talking about his own trials. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says, I had a whole bunch of stuff that was weighing me down. It was more than I could handle. But that was to teach me that I can't do it on my own. I need the Lord. God gave those trials to me as a reality check so that I would put my trust in Him completely and fully. That is the benefit of the trial. That is the opportunity to increase and to shore up our faith. There's that man in Mark the ninth chapter who is the father of a demon-possessed boy. And he comes to Jesus and he is begging Jesus to heal his son. The apostles had attempted and they were unable to do so. So he begs Jesus, Jesus, heal my son. Jesus says to him in verse 23, He says, all things are possible to the one who believes. The Father then cries out in verse 24, I do believe, help my unbelief. Can I ask you, that man, do you think that that trial on that day, do you think it caused him to have greater faith or weaker faith? You know good and well, he left that day after Jesus healed his son, he left that day with greater, stronger, more robust faith. When trials come, they push us to have a greater reliance on God. And when that happens, then suffering will have served a very magnificent purpose in our lives. And we actually ought to be thankful for that. Just like this fourth thing. And that is that trials trials help us to be sympathetic. Whenever difficulties and trials befall other people, Do you always sympathize with them as much as you would like or as much as you feel like you should? I know I I often struggle with that. Sometimes sympathy can be very hard to express, particularly when the trial that someone else is going through is something that that I just can't really relate to. I, I don't even know where to even begin. But of course, then it happens to us. And then we're the ones who are experiencing the trial. What happens then? What happens then is we find that we are in a much better position 
to now assist and to comfort and to serve others. Are you still here in 2 Corinthians 1? Back up to verse 3. Paul says so. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by Him. You see, until we've been there personally, until we've experienced it firsthand, until the Lord has had to bring us through the valley, then there's no true understanding of someone else's hurt. We cannot be genuinely sympathetic. But through our own trials, when we have been on the receiving end of the grief and the pain and the struggle ourselves, we are then better able to provide that shoulder to lean on. We are better suited to provide that listening ear. We are better equipped to offer words of advice and encouragement. And we are much more likely to do that Romans 12 verse 15 thing where we are then able to weep with those who weep. You know, it's awfully hard to say to somebody, oh, I, I know how you feel. Or you know what, I, I, I know exactly what you're going through. It's hard to say that when we haven't experienced any kind of significant trial ourselves. But one of the reasons that we can count it all joy whenever we have the trial is that that then enables us to better serve and help others in their time of need. What a blessing that is. God allows trials to come our way so that we can then serve as an instrument of comfort and sympathy in others' trials. Which brings me to this fifth opportunity that trials afford. And that is that trials trials tend to make us more prayerful. Now, it is absolutely true that Christians ought to be praying people And prayer ought to be a regular fixture in our lives already. We've done some praying already this morning in our worship assembly. And I just kind of take it as a given that you are a praying people and you pray in your private life and you pray daily and you do that regularly. And it really should not take a tragic event or a crisis to make us prayerful. But you know what? In times of trial, we really can't help but be more prayerful. Because in those moments, we're needing some comfort. And we're needing some strength. And we're needing some guidance. We're needing some peace. In fact, if you go back to our opening text in James chapter 1, in the very next verse, in verse 5, James says in verse 5 that we can actually be praying for wisdom. Sometimes in our trials we don't know what to do, so we call out to God for some wisdom. Our hearts cry out to the Lord because we need in His moment that mercy and that grace that He has promised to give to help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. And I'm going to suggest to you that prayer in those circumstances, that it is proper. It is right. It's not the only time God wants to hear from you. God, your Father wants to talk to you at all times. But especially in those moments, those kinds of prayers are right. You read the book of Psalms. The Psalms are filled with prayers that were offered by people during their times of trial. Some of Jesus' most poignant prayers were uttered in the midst of great suffering when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane even when He was hanging on the cross as He cried out to His Father. The apostles in Acts chapter 4, after they had spent the night in prison, what they do? They prayed. They prayed for boldness. In fact, can I draw your attention to one example specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, here is Paul suffering. He has this particular problem that he refers to in verse 7 as his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was, but it really caused him a lot of discomfort. Because three times, verse 8, he pleads with the Lord to take it away from him. 
Have you ever been in that position? Can you relate to that? Where you are begging God to remove some trial, some adversity from your life. Listen to the Lord's response. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. After begging the Lord three times, He said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's Paul's response to that? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You listen to me very carefully. We are never stronger than when we are brought to our knees before the God of heaven. And if it takes a trial to humble us, and to prostrate us, and to bring our hearts before His throne then thank you, Lord, may I have another. That ought to be our response. Do you see then how James was just, he was spot on when he said that trials, they help us. They make us perfect. They help to make us complete. How about the sixth and final opportunity that trials provide for us? And that is that trials... Trials can cause us to evaluate the condition of our soul. How many people started attending church services in the immediate aftermath of the attacks on September the 11th, 2001? How many people do you know who after receiving a diagnosis of a terminal illness, they came back to the Lord? Maybe they'd been away from God, they repented, came back, started walking the straight and narrow. How many people, whenever a loved one of theirs passes away, they start asking questions about the Bible, about matters of faith, about matters of salvation? How many people do those things? The answer? A lot. Suffering causes people to ask, am I living right? Am I doing right? Am I ready to meet the Lord? In the weeks and in the months that passed after my brother Ben's death, I can tell you firsthand that a lot of people started thinking about the condition of their souls, and not the least of which was yours truly. Right offhand, I can think of about a half dozen young people who ended up obeying the gospel in the weeks that followed. And it's not that they had never considered that before, but Ben's death caused them to think about that with a little more urgency and with a little more seriousness. They started thinking about the brevity of life. They started thinking about their own mortality. They started thinking about how they wanted to be ready like Ben was ready to meet his Creator. And I'm going to tell you, as sad as I may want to be about losing my brother, I take great delight in knowing that his death caused a lot of people to evaluate their soul, and as a result, they became my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. In Isaiah the 26th chapter and in verse 9, The prophet says there, for when your judgments, he's talking to God, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Isaiah says that when trials come, people take notice. People start standing at attention. It causes them to wake up. It causes people to start living right in view of eternity. In the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, the psalmist makes a statement here that really just runs entirely counter to the conventional way of thinking. 
In Psalm 119 and in verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I suffered, before I went through this trial, I was off doing my own thing. I was just living it up in sin and in pleasure and in worldliness. I was having a big old time. But then verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? So that I might learn your statutes. What? It was good to be afflicted? Yes, it was good to be afflicted because it caused me to seek after the Lord. Affliction, suffering, trials. They caused this man and they caused countless people to think soberly about the destructive road that they are headed down. It causes people to make a change. Psalmist says, if it weren't for these afflictions, Lord, who knows where I'd be? I may be dead in a ditch. I may have never become a follower of Yours. And many times that is exactly what it takes to awaken us to the reality of our situation. Do you remember the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15? When did that young man come to? When did he come to his senses? Was it when he was in the big city and he had all that money in his pockets and he's living large on the hog and he's partying and he's having a great time and he's got all his friends around him? No. It was when he hit rock bottom. It was when he was suffering. It was when he was hungry. When he was homeless. When he was all alone. It was when he was in the mud ready to eat with the pigs. You see, it took a severe trial for that young man to realize the folly of his way. And I believe that suffering is oftentimes, it is God's way of just reaching down out of heaven and grabbing us by the shirt collar and shaking us ferociously and saying, What is wrong with you? What are you doing? Wake up! Look at the destructive path that you're walking down. What are you doing with your life? Stop being lukewarm in your service to me. Stop being indecisive as to whether or not you're going to serve me. Stop wasting away your life in sin. Come home. It is that gracious Father trying desperately to get our attention. And He is giving us a second, or maybe a third, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth opportunity to wisen up, to get our lives right with Him before it is too late. Indeed, it is good that I have been afflicted. It is good that I have experienced trials. There is a song that we have been singing now for the past year or so that many of us here have grown to love greatly. It is the song, Jesus... Draw me ever nearer. And it is a song that throughout the verses and the chorus is just asking the Lord, Lord, help me. Help me to draw closer to You and to cling to You in the difficulties and the trials of this life. Probably the most powerful and profound line to me in the entire song is verse number 3. And it is that third verse that says, Let the treasures of the trial form within me as I go. And at the end of this long passage, let me leave them at your throne. Let me ask you this morning. Do you believe that? When we sing that, do you believe the words of that song? Do you see your trials as a treasure? Do you welcome the opportunity for those trials to form within you, to work within you, to bring about that pearl, that treasure of spiritual maturity.
And furthermore, are you prepared for that great day that the hymn writer talks about? The day when you can then lay that treasure down at the throne of Jesus in exchange for a glorious crown. James goes on to say in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing that very song. And we're going to sing that not only to encourage all of us to draw closer and to cling more closely to Jesus, but to provide you and I with the opportunity maybe to respond to the invitation of Jesus. Do you need this morning to be united with Jesus in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? We can help you with that. Do you need, brother or sister, to repent and to return to the shepherd of your souls in humility and in prayer? We can, we can help you with that. Do you maybe just need some help this morning in being able to make sense of and finding the treasure in your trial? If so, we'd love to assist you in that, to encourage you and to help you in whatever way that we can. We can assist anyone this morning in any way to serve the Lord and to be ready for heaven. Then would you take advantage of this opportunity right now by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.